wow, these are all the different ways that I've thought about memory and identity. Choose to be Curious is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Wharton. Welcome. This week, I'm working on a course description for a class I'm offering through Encore Learning in the fall called What Kind of Curious Are You? Riffing off all that I've garnered in my years doing this show. In reflecting on all that work, I focused on some of the themes that surface over and over in those conversations, questions of power, transformation, and oh, so importantly, empathy. And that got me thinking about the people upon whom we depend to help us sort those things out, the writers, artists, musicians, and other creative stewards who shepherd the rest of us through the complexity and intensity Drilling, distilling, redefining our very ideas of ourselves and of humanity. So what role might curiosity play in their work? When my most recent intern, Reed Weiler, closed out his time with the show, I asked for suggestions about curiosity conversations he thought were maybe missing, places he hoped we would go still. He mentioned futurist, which sent me down quite the rabbit hole. Stay tuned. But combined, those nuggets brought me eventually to writer and playwright Liz Coley. Now, to be fair, a college housing director many years ago brought me to Liz first. Full disclosure, we were college roommates for two years a long time ago. But for choose to be curious purposes, it was that kernel of an idea that did it. Liz was a serious scientist when I knew her in college, like molecular biophysics, biochemistry kind of serious scientist. She went on to business school and hospital administration, and somewhere along the line, she discovered she had a knack and a passion for young adult science fiction and then for plays. Liz describes her work as taking people places they never thought to go, to understand the enemy, to open eyes and ears, to expose truths both shining and dark, and to heal whenever possible. That sounds so Liz, for starters. But it's that that I'm talking about. Where does curiosity fit into that? When the reviews of Liz's play Castaways at the San Diego Fringe Festival came in recently, I decided the time had come to get her to join me for a curiosity conversation. So welcome, Liz. Well, thank you. We've come a long way since room 1783. (laughs) Indeed we have. So what's the through line from room 1783 and STEM-centered Liz, not a term we used in those days, to hospital administration, to young adult sci-fi and plays? Well, it's a wandering journey for sure. I had thought perhaps about going to medical school, but when we were in college, I did the biochemistry major and looked at the friends I'd made who were pre-med, and I said, I'm not the same as them. I have the empathy, but I don't see myself spending 10 years learning how to be at the bedside healing people in that manner. And my mom said to me, well, you like to be a boss. I'm the oldest of four children. Why don't you go to business school? So I credit (laughs) mom, actually, with pointing me in the direction of management. So when did you start writing? Uh, In graduate school, I wrote 
one short story and submitted it to Asimov Science Fiction Magazine. It was not accepted. It probably wasn't very good. But I loved reading as a consumer. I love science fiction, uh, futurists, etc. I love the ideas of thinking about the future. And I thought, you know, I have a story to tell. I did that. And then years later, I went to a writing workshop uh, when I lived in Columbus. And that writing workshop was oriented towards science fiction, which was great. It was right up my alley. I brought a couple of new short stories that I had made an attempt on, and I got some positive feedback. And I thought, okay, there's something here. Yeah. I mean, I've always been good at putting words on paper and, and thinking of good sentences, but taking it into the realm of fiction was definitely something new because as a child, I thought, ah, who would ever care about my stories? And somehow I got over that hump and decided I liked my own stories. You have to like them enough to have the confidence to send them out into the world, even if you maybe undersell how well other people might like them. Right, right. So, you know, the research I did in, in those days, which were the olden days where you actually had to make multiple copies of things, you had to put them in envelopes and mail them to people. I learned the process. And at one point when the boys, my two boys were little, I think it was, well, it was the year 2000. So they were eight and six. I had an idea for a science fiction story that I thought they would like, but a novel. And I sat down and started writing that longhand during piano lessons, during taekwondo, and reading them the chapters at night from my notebook and getting there right oh, on the spot. Oh, they were your first feedback. readers. They were my first readers. I mean, we did a ton as parents. We did a ton of reading at that time. And they gave me good feedback. They were very sweet. And that was the first novel that I ever completed. I've revised it twice since then and eventually self-published it. But I loved the process so much that as soon as I finished, I thought, let's have another one. <laughs> uh -huh. So talk to me about taking people places they never thought to go. This, in my mind, is sort of the thing that is what curiosity does, right? Is it takes you places you didn't, or you thought to go there, but you didn't know what you would find. So generally, when I start writing a book or start formulating, let's say formulating, not the writing, because the formulating starts way before the writing, often I start with a title. For example, I had one of the phrases I used with my kids when they had procrastinated and then were desperate was, welcome to the last minute. <laughs> well, I knew that had to be the title of a book, and I didn't know what that story was going to be. And so I just held that idea in abeyance, as they say. I put it in the corner of my mind as a title waiting for a story. Other times, it feels like the character comes first. When I found out that a friend of mine had dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder, as we used to call it in the 70s, and alternate personalities, and she had healed from this, I thought, I'm definitely going to write a book with a character with DID as the protagonist, but I don't know what the story is yet. And I had to wait until I had another idea and figure out, ah, that is her story. And as soon as I found it, I knew that that was her story. So that took me into a very dark place because 
you only dissociate if something terrible has happened right. to you. Right. It's a response to trauma. Absolutely. It is a response to trauma. It's a survival mechanism. And as I did my research, this is probably the book I did the most research for of anything I've written. I came to have this tremendous respect and understanding for it as a defense mechanism of the brain and one of the most remarkable things that the brain can do. And as somebody with a science background, I was reading science papers about both the diagnosis and the treatment and how it works. And I was immersed in the writing of it to the point where I was dreaming that I was in captivity, that I was the main character. Oh, wow. So in terms of going places that you never thought you would go, that happened to me as I was writing it. Well, and I can attest that reading it does that too. Yeah. Because I haven't read all of your plays, but I have read all of your books. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I remember that you had been doing a bunch of research on this subject and knowing that you were working on a book, but not knowing what that book would ultimately be. And then when, when it was released, it's like, oh, this is, this is where that work went. Wow. So I can give you another example of where finding something out made me intensely curious. And in this case, it didn't become a research project, but a project of imagination. And I learned that somebody in my circle was a convict, a woman was a convicted child molester. And I thought, what is the motivation that would make a mature woman have an affair with a 15-year-old boy? And so I thought, hmm, I want to understand that. Even though it's really dark and distasteful, I want to understand that person. Now, right. I didn't actually talk to that person, but I, I did, you know, what Einstein called a thought experiment. What could have been in the mind of somebody who did this? So those thought experiments, I mean, research, flagging a nugget or something where you, you know, a little bit and you want to know a little bit more, those are curiosity practices as I would describe them, right? Do you see them as curiosity practices? Do you think of it in that way? Well, I do now. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) No, definitely we've had a theme and discussions in our family about willful ignorance. And there's sort of, there are, there are some people who are willfully ignorant. They just don't want to know more. They just want to get on with, you know, their everyday life. They don't read every piece of paper that comes in front of them. And they're different from me. Then there are people who are just, yeah, well, they're just incurious, not willfully ignorant, but just incurious. It just doesn't cross their mind to go look for more information. But my family is absolutely curious. And we have a little saying in the family, you don't have to not know. I so like when, that. whenever somebody says, I wondered, da, 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 the rest of the family says, well, you don't have to not know. And it's almost a race to get on your iPhone and ask Google some question that's going to lead to some really interesting information. Uh And even when we go down these rabbit holes independently, now that, you know, people are spread to the winds, we'll let each other know when we have found a really interesting piece of information and send somebody else in the family down that same 
rabbit hole of learning. You all are like curiosity contagion vectors intentionally infecting other people. Intentionally, like yes. <laughs> Definitely in, in infecting our family members. And, you know, in a way, I mean, you, it's interesting for all of the the complaints about what social media and all of that has done to people. I just wonder if on some level it's hijacked the curiosity gene, <laughs> the curiosity aspect in people. Now, maybe they're just curious about cute cats, um, but somehow it's tapped into our primate natural curiosity to know something different or see something new or see something familiar and see something confirmed. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I think it's all a part of that. So I recently saw the parable of the sower and and your work had brought Octavia Butler to mind for me and for those who aren't familiar with her work and I was not until recently. She's a pioneering black female writer in a genre long dominated by white men. And I gather the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Genius Grant, which is pretty cool. And she talked about the space race as being a gateway for her into, you know, just sort of an access to and and a ready availability and excitement about science information and learning and her own sort of addiction to the news as being these really important contributors to what she was writing. And it made me think too of not only do you have this deep science background, but you're engaged in local activism and and I'm wondering how imagining sort of alternative societies relies on curiosity and finds its way, whether it's into science fiction or your plays, which may or may not, because I'm not as familiar with them, um, rely on science fiction as much. Mm-hmm. Thoughts about that? Well, the hardest thing to write in science fiction is near science fiction. Yeah. But... I've discovered because by the time something is out there and published, it's already happened. If you're good at imagining the future, you're too late, uh-huh. basically. I mean, I was very proud of myself for inventing smartphones in... <laughs> in one of my novels. And six months later, they were announced that, yes, they had GPS. Yes, they were on the internet. I was like, all right, well, never mind that I thought of that. It's it's easier to think of near future and get it right. Um, far future is just baffling. Yeah. So I've mentioned, I've, I've read your books. I haven't read all of your plays. I did read Castaways. What do plays offer that's different from novels? I mean, for you as a writer, or maybe for the audience as well? Well, so interestingly, the, when I went to my first playwriting class it was because I was deeply frustrated in the, you know, dark night of the soul, as you call it in a novel. And I went to a week-long immersion playwriting masterclass, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And I realized, or I already knew, the things that I'm best at are characterization and and dialogue. And the things that I struggle with Uh. and find boring to do are writing descriptions of the place and the sounds. And so when I first draft a novel, it was what I call a white room. Things happen, but not in a context. And then I would go back and fill in the context and the details and the sensory stuff. So playwriting was an absolute natural outlet for me because it's all talking. (laughs) So 
and people immediately gave me good feedback and said, oh, that sounds like such a natural conversation. And the first, the very first thing I wrote and had read at the table, the actor said, wow, I feel like you lived in my house and heard my parents fighting. Mm. (laughs) Well, that's pretty affirming. I mean, in a sad way, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is a story of reconciliation. And in fact, uh, redemption stories are my favorite story arc, really. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is that? I don't know, but it's. I find it consistent. I like to think that people who start out flawed can find a way to be better. I just, I'm just a sucker for stories where someone that you think is the bad guy isn't or has a reason for it. So that ends up showing up in my work too, setting somebody up as the bad guy. And as I go along, I don't necessarily start out with the idea of redeeming them, but by the end of the story, I kind of do. So that's interesting because of course, Alzheimer's has no intentionality, right? But I would say that in Castaways, dementia starts out as the bad guy. And it's clear somewhere in that play that uh, you're maybe not saying that it's necessarily the bad guy. I mean, it's one of the things that's beautiful about it is it's so, well, it's a very poignant play, but, and funny, but you come away with this kind of like, huh, like, how am I supposed to, like, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? And that's very effective. That's sticky, Mm -hmm. right? For an audience, that's sticky. It, It is. And I mean, that's the other big theme in my work that was emergent. And I realize it colors so much of what I do, which is the relationship between memory and identity. And Mm. as I was thinking back, you know, just getting thinking about this interview, I just started thinking about, wow, these are all the different ways that I've thought about memory and identity. And some of them have been grounded in reality, like dementia, like dissociative identity, You know, if you don't remember everything about yourself, who are you? Who are you when you lose your memories? Who are you when you recapture lost, repressed memories? Um, And then I've also thought about it in a scientific or sci-fi kind of sense. If your memories are uploaded, are you still a person? If your memories are transferred into another person, who are you? If a backup of you is made, which one of you is the real you? And and sci-fi has asked that kind of question for years. And I just found myself telling my own stories around some of those themes as well. You know, again, with this curiosity lens that I wear at all times, becoming curious about like, what makes me me? What, What are my memories? Can I trust those memories? What do I do with those memories? What happens to those memories when they go someplace else, you're trying to sort those things out and ask us those questions to ask ourselves, aren't you? I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, I I, I hope, as I said in one of my artistic author statements, I'd like people to leave the theater and have the conversations that they should have before the need arises. Uh, I've got several plays that deal with dementia. You've read one of them. And that one treats it in a a light, humorous tone, but it also has to do with two women who sort of 
use what could be considered a fantasy to deal with this this problem of being in memory care and being being isolated and stranded, but they have found a way to cope. I mean, it's something I think about because there's been dementia in my family. Right. So I guess one way you deal with this this sort of specter is to try to understand it in a lot of different ways. So if you had known sooner what you know now about writing, would you have started sooner? And do you have any advice for people who contemplate writing of whatever form? Well, so don't do it for a living. (laughs) (laughs) That's one. (laughs) Talk to strangers because you get a lot of inspiration from talking to strangers. You know, there are a lot of people who start writing very young before they've had world experience. And you can say, okay, they're getting practice. They're getting practice writing. They're getting practice learning how the business works, whether they're doing it for print or for performance. I just feel that there's a richness to being older. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that came across... Again, in my playwriting class where we were working with college students, first of all, there are a lot of words they don't know, which makes me kind of sad. You know, those days when we drilled vocabulary and read books that were way too sophisticated for us were important formative experiences. Yeah. And I feel like it's a little bit of a, a disservice to kids not to make them learn the words in our incredibly rich language. But the other thing is that they said, wow, you know so many things. And I think about their 18, 19, 20-year-old innocence. You know, I didn't know these things at that age. So if I'd, that's why a lot of the things that I started writing younger are very facile. You know, you think you're the first person that ever thought of this idea. You know, now at this ripe old age, I know I'm not the first person that thought of this idea. I'm just telling it in my way. So on the other hand, being a mature writer, it's much harder, especially playwright, it's harder to find a place that's going to support your career development because they're really looking at people in their 20s and 30s uh, to invest, you know, 10, 15 years of development time into them. So until they become mature playwrights, and I won't be a mature playwright until I... (laughs) A lot older than I am now. <laughs> well, I want to give you an opportunity. It's not exactly writing, but to put some of your vocabulary and creative <laughs> to work here with my, this is my big jar of wannabe analogies. And I'm going to take out some slips of paper here. One for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Yours is orange juice. I was curiosity like orange juice. Mine is pepper. And we have one for the audience. So do you want to go or you want me to go first? All right. I'll riff. Okay. okay first of all, this is very ironic because I'm allergic to orange juice, but no. I love it. I am not allergic <laughs> to curiosity. <laughs> so orange juice is like curiosity. Uh freshly picked and warm from the sun it tastes like nothing else you can imagine Mm. Um, it's bright and it's sharp 
and it's sweet. And when you drink it, it nourishes you. Oh, nice. <laughs> very nice. Very. I don't know if I remember that you were allergic to orange juice. I feel like I might have known that a long time ago. But um, so mine is pepper. Um, hmm. I'm going to try to not make it like orange juice here. Um, I was curiously <laughs> like pepper. So, you know, salt and pepper both are things that we often put into the mix, but also things that we add after the fact. And I guess... I think curiosity is like that as well. It's something that you can cook in, you can bake it in, but it's also something that you can kind of grind in, sprinkle on top that then really heightens the experience. I guess that's how I'll say curiosity is like pepper. And audience, yours is toothbrush. How is curiosity like a toothbrush? Let us know, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Liz, this was great. Thank you so much for this and I got to go read some more of your plays. I will send you some. You've been listening to WERA Radio Arlington. Check us out online at WERA.FM. You can find all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com and where you get your podcasts. Find me on Facebook and Instagram at choosetobecurious. I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two letter B curious. Don't forget to send us your toothbrush analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Liz Coley. Find her everywhere as Liz Coley Books. Doing my homework for this episode, I discovered New Playwright Exchange, the world's largest digital library of scripts by living writers. Just $10 gets you membership and access to read new playwright scripts. So cool. Thanks, too, to Reed Weiler for egging me on and to Sean Ballack for our theme music. This is Entrance Shaft 11 by The Depot via Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. So your, your, your pepper analogy made me think of something which you may or may not find a way to work in. And that is when you write a play, you don't understand what you wrote the first time. And you query your own work and you analyze your own work and you try to understand what is this trying to tell me. And then you do a revision and then you do another one and you come to understand your work as you go along. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash novahousehunter.com.